Many of you probably know the Song of Solomon. If I was to ask you, do you know the Song of Solomon? You would probably say, yes, it's located in the Old Testament right after the book of Proverbs. And indeed, that is the case. Uh, but did you know that there's actually another Song of Solomon? I'll bet you didn't know that, did you? And uh, this song can actually be found on the uh, Billboard 100 number one song. You didn't know Solomon was still writing hits, did you? Indeed, he is. It was a collaborative effort. Solomon wrote the lyrics, and a guy named uh, Peter Seeger wrote the tune, uh, taking the lyrics directly from Ecclesiastes 3. And the song was picked up by a group named The Birds, and it became a number one hit. Do you recognize this song? How many recognize that song? Okay. Dating yourself big time there. This was the 60s, and uh, yes, it uh, became a number one song. And I actually, I listened to the whole song. It is almost exactly from the ESV translation here in Ecclesiastes 3, verses 1 through, uh, 1 through 8. Surprisingly accurate, uh, frankly. And it has the distinction of being the number one song with the oldest lyrics ever. 3,000-year-old lyrics to that number one song, and it became wildly popular. And uh, so this is the text that we are in, probably the best-known uh, text in Ecclesiastes, partially because of the song and just partially because of the nature of of the text. So it's a very well-known section. The meaning of it is not as well-known, and that's my job today, is to try to explain what uh, this text is, uh, is all about. So what we're going to do today is we're going to take on verses 1 through 15 of Ecclesiastes 3, longer section. It easily divides into two parts, verses 1 through 8, a poem about everything, and verses 9 through 15, the God who is over everything, okay? So easily divided in that way. And frankly, if you just look at the text, it, it divides that way visually. If you notice verses one through eight in an English translation, maybe you can see, almost see it on the screen there, it looks kind of like what? What other portion of the Bible? It looks like Psalms, doesn't it? And indeed, uh, it is a lyric, it is a poem, a piece of, a piece of art. And uh, that's the poem about everything, followed by the God who is over everything. So let's get into the text here today. Verse 1 through 8. For everything there is a season, and a time for every matter under heaven. A time to be born, and a time to die. A time to plant, and a time to pluck up what is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. Right away, you read through that, 
And don't all those things sound normal? Like, aren't these just normal human activities? Birth, death, weep, dance, love, even hate. Fairly normal human stuff. And this is why I'm calling this a poem about everything. And what Solomon is doing here, as he often does in Ecclesiastes, is he's writing in a sweeping sort of big picture, 30,000 foot sort of way about what it means to be a human being and the reality of the human condition, our hopes, our dreams, our sorrows, our joys, our pains. And I suspect this is why this poem has been so popular is that it doesn't matter where you are or who you are, you're somewhere in this poem. In fact, maybe you should just take a look back at it and say, okay, where am I in this poem here today? Because you're somewhere in this. Maybe look at it a second. Where are you? Where are you? A poem describing us, a poem about human beings. And this is Solomon's purpose, I think, is to is to just describe it in a lyrical, poetic sort of way. And notice that he, 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 he does polarities here or extremes. Like in each of these categories, it's this and then it's also this over here. It is love and it is hate. It is war and it is peace. And by that, he's not saying it is only war and only peace. It's a literary device where he's saying it is this and it is this and it is everything in between. Life is that. We are somewhere on the continuum always in all of these categories. And verse 1 gives the summary here. He says, for everything there is a season. Okay? A season. And then he follows it up with the word time. 28 times he says time. There is a time for this, and there is a time for that. There is a chapter in life that is like this, and then there is a chapter in life that is like that. And if you think about your life, can't you kind of look at it in terms of seasons of this and seasons of that? We were here and did this, and then we were there and did that. It kind of is a nice way to describe it. It is accurate to what it's like. And the human... uh, heart typically is discontented in whatever season it's in, right? So if you ask like a three-year-old little girl, how old are you? She will say often, almost four, okay? I am in this chapter, but I can't wait to be in that chapter. Or uh, this time of year, oftentimes seniors in high school uh, get all sort of weird, right? And uh, they can't wait to get out of this season and to get on with, like, the rest of their life. In fact, we call it something. What do we call that? Senioritis. That's right. We got any, any seniors here having senioritis right now? Yeah? No? One? Okay. In the front. Um, so... We all understand that life kind of has that. There's, there's times of, of different experiences that, um, that happen. And part of what we've got to get to understand what Solomon is saying here is to realize that all of these things are things that happen to us, or they are our response to circumstances that happen to us. They are, they are things that are thrust upon us, and oftentimes they are not things that we're planning on, okay? You might right now be in a season of joy, 
But there could be a season of mourning ready to arrive tomorrow on Monday. You don't know, do you? Joy, sorrow, good things, bad things. We oftentimes don't see these things coming, and then they overwhelm us, and they become like a season of our life, unexpectedly. Like mourning, a time of mourning, most often is an unexpected chapter that God brings into our life. We didn't see it coming, but now all of a sudden, it like dominates our life and the way that we look at things and the emotions that we have inside. Season of mourning. But seasons of joy also can be that way. It's not all bad. Sometimes God, you know, sometimes there are things that happen that are, that are good chapters, and it's a great chapter in our life. You maybe could look back in your life, and there are times, seasons, when it just seemed like everything was right, and everything was good, and those are wonderful times as well. But the list overall is here pointing out that while we may think that we are in control, the things that really define our life we are not in control of. We pretend, I got my calendar, I'm gonna plan, okay, I'm gonna do this here on this date, and I'm gonna do this on that date, like James 4. You say that you're gonna go here and do business and do there and do business. We have all of our plans, and James goes on to say, what are you, your life is a mist, okay? You shouldn't say, I'm gonna do this and I'm gonna do this. You can only say, I'm gonna do this if the Lord wills it. Because what do we know about the future? Nothing. And the things that dominate our story are most often things that we do not produce and things that we cannot control. They're out of our control. I remember this uh, in, in our life last September. We were having dinner with friends. What's more normal than having dinner with friends? We had that on our calendar. We're having dinner with these friends. When we noticed that our three-month-old daughter was struggling, and that ended up with an ambulance ride to a hospital and four days of parental terror that we did not see coming. And we're still kind of living in a little bit to this day. It's a season of life that was thrust upon us. I'm sure you have things in your story like that, don't you? There are seasons and times and chapters to life, and the big ones are completely out of our control. And so Solomon's wanting us to see life through this larger grid of man's dilemma. We make our plans, we act like we're in control of what's happening, but there's a season for everything. And no matter how much we plan, these seasons are coming, ready or not. So it's a long list here, and I'm not going to hit all of them, and some of them actually the meaning is somewhat obscure. But just to notice a few of the highlights. Notice he begins with a time to be born and a time to die. Okay, The two basic bookends of life. These are the things that get put on your uh, gravestone. She was born on this date and she died on this date. Those two most defining things about our life we have no control over. How many of you planned to be born? Okay. You had no control over that, did you? Right? How many of you can plan on the day you die? We don't know the day that we're going to die, do we? Now, we can plan to live forever, but we're going to die someday, and that date is unknown to us. Both unknown, unplanned. Martin Luther, you cannot live any longer than the Lord has prescribed, nor die any sooner. Those dates are not in our control. They're in somebody else's control. He says a time to kill and a time to heal. 
Maybe you read that and you're like, wow, that sounds like grotesquely violent. What do you mean there's a time to go and kill? We have to understand that this is, you know, millennia old Middle Eastern life where going to war and fighting for your town was a basic part of life. And there is a biblical distinction between murder and killing. You might remember David before uh, his sin with Bathsheba. It says, in the time that kings went to war, it was just part of life. There was a time that you went to war. But then there's also a time when you do the opposite of that and you heal those wounds. There's times of war. There's times of peace. Both of them are part of the human experience. Look at verse 4. This is my favorite one in the list. There is a time to weep and there is a time to laugh. There is a time to mourn and there is a time to dance. Now these are both polarities, extremes that we experience in life. Weeping and mourning, most often tragic circumstances that we cannot control. We do not expect them to come to us. Laughing and dancing is the opposite of that, isn't it? Laughing and dancing is uh, joyous times that happen in our life, and we can just celebrate. And So one's the funeral home, one's the wedding reception. And both of those are part of what it means to be human. And I perceive a little grace gift in this verse right here that I think probably many people here um, could benefit from and be blessed by. What do I mean by that? Sometimes we have experiences in life, seasons of life, that are painful, like mourning and weeping, as Solomon says. And sometimes we experience those and we think to ourselves, I am never going to get over this. This is going to dominate my life for the rest of my life. I'm going to be in this season, this time, forever. I think of uh, Naomi in the book of Ruth as an example of this. If you remember the story in Ruth 1, Naomi loses her husband. And she is so grief-stricken over losing her husband and so angry about it that she actually changes her name. Do you remember this? She changes her name from Naomi to Mara. And Mara means bitter. You can know you're committed to your bitterness when you change your name to bitter. From now on, just call me bitter. And this is going to be my name for the rest of my life. I am never getting over this. this I'm determined that this chapter is the last chapter of my life. But then you read through Ruth, and you get to Ruth 4. And at the end of Ruth, what do you have? You have Ruth married to Boaz, and they've had a child named Obed, and there's Naomi. Literally, it says, she's bouncing Obed on her lap, okay? Obed, the grandson of the great King David. At the end of, the, of Ruth, Naomi isn't Mara anymore. She's back being Naomi. And I say that because I know our church and, you know, we have people, ups and downs and all the things that happen in life. And maybe as you sit here today, there is something that has happened in your life, in your past, that you are committed to remaining in that chapter and in that season. You hear like the Psalm 23 video that we, that we played earlier in the service. You have walked through the valley of the shadow of death and you're determined, I'm staying in the valley. And you miss the fact that Psalm 23 ends with, uh, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. That that 
valley is not the last thing that God is doing in your life. And so there you are, entrenched in being Mara, and missing the fact that in the plan of God, there are seasons of this and there are seasons of that. And maybe you've looked for some biblical warrant for you to get over that thing and to move on in your life. Take a look at Ecclesiastes 3, 4, and maybe you can view that as a time and a season, but not the last one, and to move on. You know, God's a God about new things, isn't he? New life, new man, redemption, salvation, the things that God's going to do in the future. None of us are stuck in the painful past of things that happen. If you're a Christian, you are not stuck in that. And so I just want to say as your pastor, move on. Okay, move on, set that chapter aside and get on with the new thing that God wants to do in your life. Amen? Amen. Okay. I think that was a good word for somebody here, or maybe a couple hundred people here. A very good word. All right, so Solomon here, describing polarities, describing the extremes, describing human life. What he doesn't do in this poem, he just is kind of like, he's, he's describing it, but he is not explaining it. He doesn't say why life has these seasons. But he does now, beginning in verse 9, he explains why. Look at verse 9. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil, coffee included. That was the message from two weeks ago. He kind of returns to that theme. This is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor can anything be taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. Solomon now returns to that basic theme and question of Ecclesiastes. If the seasons come, and if the seasons go, if the chapters come and the chapters go, and I am not in control of any of these things anyway, how do I live? Like, how do, I, how do I live my life with any sanity if I am not in control of these basic things? What if the whims of politics and the whims of financial markets and the whims of where I work, some boss that's making decisions that directly con control my future? And what about family members that are making decisions and treating me in certain ways I can't control it? Or what about this or what about that? If all of this is so seemingly uncertain, how do I live? Like, how do I live with any sanity in the uncertainties of this world? And here now is where Solomon, and he does this occasionally through Ecclesiastes. Remember, Ecclesiastes is Solomon describing man's pursuit of meaning as if there is no God. And so he pursues these, we saw this in chapter two, he pursues these to their logical conclusion, and it's always depressing. Like he gets to the bottom of it and he's just like, what's the point? It's all absurd. But every once in a while, Solomon like opens the drapes and lets the light of his real theology come through. 
And he does that here, where he comes to this point of the uncertainty of life, and he opens the drapes, and the light of the actual existence of God is shown. Is that the right word? Shined? You're a senior in high school, help me. You have no idea. Are you actually going to graduate? <laughs> Shines through into the absurdity of life without God. And you see that in verse 11. He says, he has made everything, what? Beautiful in its time. There's the word again. He has made everything beautiful in its time. And here now we have the God who is over everything. It was the poem about everything, but now the God who is over everything. He begins chapter 3, for everything there is a season. And now in verse 11, he says God makes everything beautiful in its time. There's the key part right there, in its time. In due time. In the seasons of life, in the good and the bad, in the, in the mourning and in the dancing, in the war, in the peace, in the love, in the hate, in due time, God is making and will make everything beautiful. Now, I wonder, New Testament scholars, does this bring up any verse maybe that you're like, that sounds kind of like something that I have read in the New Testament, some verse that talks about the purposes and the plans of God working towards something beautiful, or I'll give you a tip, something good. What's that verse? Romans eight twenty eight, which Paul says this, and we know that those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purposes. Now, both of these verses, Ecclesiastes 3.11 and Romans 8.28, are highlighting the same truth, namely, that God is sovereign over the seasons of life, that God is sovereign over the ups and downs of life. What are to us uncertainties are to God certainties because he is guiding and directing them to his will and purpose. Ephesians 1.11, God is working everything according to the purpose of his will, that this world is not random, that this world is not happen chance, that there is a God who is over all of it, including the seasons of our life, and he is directing all of them to what Romans calls something good and what Ecclesiastes calls something beautiful. This is the sovereignty of God, and this is one of our key doctrines here at Bethel Church. We believe that God is sovereign over everything. Now, what does that mean? Let me quote one of our theologians we like, Wayne Grudem, defines the sovereignty of God this way. God is continually involved with all created things in such a way that, number one, he keeps them existing and maintaining the properties with which he created them. So you have the galaxies doing what he created them to do, and you have the electron circling around the neutron, or is it the proton? Again, <laughs> he shakes his head. 
There's some wonderful GED programs available for you. Whatever Tron is circling a Tron, God created that Tron to do that. And it continues to do that by his sovereign will and power. Secondly, cooperates with created things in every action, directing their distinctive properties to cause them to act as they do. Third, that he directs them to fulfill his purposes. And it is this third aspect of the sovereignty of God that Solomon is writing about here that God is directing the seasons of life, all of them, the good, the bad, the in-between, all of them are being directed by the hand of God towards a goal, okay, towards a goal, which Solomon says is beautiful, Paul says is good, all of them fulfilling his purposes, that God is sovereign over all of it. Now, you have to, to get the sovereignty of God, you have to get a sister doctrine to the sovereignty of God, which is the providence of God, okay? The providence of God. The sovereignty of God is God's absolute power, God's absolute purpose and plan, big picture over everything. The providence of God is like God's sovereignty at work at the street level of life. God is providentially working in all of the little details of every single one of our life. That none of these things are chance. None of these things are random. That all is sovereignty over our lives and all is providence in our life. Nothing that happened to you, in other words, nothing that happened to you this week came as a surprise to God. And it's not just that he foreknew it. But also he was sovereignly working in it. He knew it in eternity past. He knows what this week has, both on the national, international, and personal dimensions of our life. He is not surprised. He is powerfully exerting his sovereign control and working in all of these things and all of these aspects. And it is these two truths that give us assurance that no matter what season I'm in, no matter where I read in Ecclesiastes 3, like, okay, I think I'm in this weeping time, that I don't have to wonder when I'm in the time of weeping, God, did you know this was going to happen, or do you care? Or how can you use this in some way? God is sovereignly working in everything. He is sovereign over everything. An example of this, Job got this. If you read the story of Job, Job was a rich guy. Job had a lot of things, a lot of kids. In one day, in fact, it's like in one hour, he lost everything. Runners came to him and said, hey, the tent blew down, all your kids were killed. The, another runner comes and says, the Midianites stole all your camels and all your sheep. These runners just keep coming at him. You lost this, you lost this, you lost this. Job's response shows what it looks like when I am seeing everything in life as being from the sovereign hand of God. Because Job's response was, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now he was a real guy. But he saw 
the things in his life as being from the hand of God. I'll never forget some years ago, I was, uh, there was a family in our church that tragically lost their son to a drug overdose. And they asked me to be in the hospital room. Their, the grandfather happened to be having a fairly major surgery, and they didn't tell him before the surgery. They were going to tell him after the surgery, and they asked me to be in the, sur- in the, in the hospital room when they shared the news with the grandfather. And I'll tell you, the grandfather, one of the godliest men I've ever known, okay? And this is an example of what I'm talking about. I'll never forget it because he was uh, laying there on the bed and they shared the news that his grandson had died. And he became emotional, but here's what he said. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. When that's what comes to your mind in a loss like that, that's somebody that understands God is sovereign over everything and God is providential in everything. We tend to be like this. We tend to take the, when God gives, we tend to take the credit for it, and when God takes away, we want to blame God for it, right? But to see both of those as being from God, to see the seasons that are good and the seasons that are hard as being from God, and to know that the sovereign God that is over us is working in all of these details. This is the only thing that helps us keep our sanity in life, don't you think? To know that there is a God and that he is the one that is directing everything to the purposes that he has foreordained. So how do we respond to this sovereign God? How are we supposed to live? And Solomon helps us here by giving us like guidelines for how do we respond to life that is completely lived according to God's purpose, God's clock, as I'm calling it here. And the first thing that Solomon says is that we have to acknowledge that life is a mystery. We have to acknowledge that life is a mystery. Look, at, look again at what he says. Also... He has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. God has put eternity into our hearts. Human beings uniquely in this galaxy ask the why question, don't we? You hear that from people. When when a tragedy happens, it could be the earthquake, they interview people after the earthquake or whatever it is, people oftentimes say, Why did this happen, okay? Assuming that there is always some ultimate meaning behind why things happen, or they'll say, I know this happened for a purpose or a reason. Assuming that there is some thing, purpose behind everything. Why do we do, why do, animals don't do this. Animals just take the day as it comes, don't they? Oh, it's a new day, what am I eating? That's it, that's all that they care about. But humans uniquely ask that more Uh, philosophical question, why? Why has this happened? Maybe there are things in your life, in your story, you look back on and you think to yourself, why? Why did that happen? That's exactly what Solomon is saying. God has put eternity in our hearts. We want to understand life from that eternity perspective. We want to know. We want to understand. But what can we understand about the future or maybe even some of these things that have happened in our life? Zilch, right? 
We don't know. We don't know in an ultimate sense why these things have happened. We don't know what is going to happen. Listen to what Jesus said uh, to his disciples before his ascension, Acts 1-7. It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. Here's Isaiah 55-9. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And frankly, there are so many things about life that remain mysteries to us. You wonder why. Like, I think in my, own, in my own life, did you know I'm a person? I'm not just a pastor. Did you know I'm a person too? I am a person. And I think about my, my life story. I have some questions. Like, I think about, you know, a couple decades of praying, desiring family, marriage, kids, and all of that, but waiting, 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 like decades of waiting, only to get married, I became a husband, and then truly a father like three weeks later, and I look at that story, and I'm like, God, I mean, wouldn't it, could we have spread those out a little bit, you know, like, husband, daughter, bam, 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 wait, like this. If those could have been maybe spread out a little bit, could have coped a little bit better with all of the change, but that, what can I say? It wasn't, it wasn't God's plan for my life. I had a season of this and then a season of that, and that's my life. How about you? Do you look at your story? Are there some mysteries? Are there some things you want to ask God someday? Why that? I've heard this described like a tapestry, you know? On one side of the tapestry, if you look at one side of the tapestry, all you see is like knots and fraying threads and, you know, yarns and different things. You look at it and you're like, that's a mess. That thing is, that's ugly. But then you turn the tapestry around and all of a sudden you see the beauty of the, of the tapestry. And here we are, we're little threads in this tapestry and the weaver is, you know, making a knot and yanking us this way and then turning us this way and weaving us through this thing. And some of those are like, ouch, ooh, I didn't like that. And we look at life from the, from the one side of it, don't we? We don't see the other side. But what Solomon says is someday, from the perspective of eternity and the perspective of God, we will look at everything that God has done in our lives and in the story of human history, and we will say, it is beautiful. It is good. It is good. Even the hard things. But they remain a mystery to us now. The second thing that Solomon gets at here is really what allows us to walk out of these doors after this service without being in terror, okay? Without being in terror. Look at verse 12. He says, I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. The sovereignty of God is the one assuring thing that allows us to live in all of these uncertainties, to approach this week where I don't know what's coming. It could be a devastating chapter. In fact, no doubt in, with this many people here, somebody here has a devastating chapter awaiting them this week. Somebody here in this room right now. How do you walk out of those doors 
without just being like psychotic in fear about what might come and what's going to happen. It is the sovereignty of God. And that's what Solomon says here. He says, hey, there's nothing better in this one life than for you to live joyfully. How do you live joyfully when you realize there's all these times and seasons? You do so understanding that God is sovereign over our lives in the future. Let me illustrate it this way. How many of you rode a school bus growing up? Okay. All right. And I'm with you right now. Okay. How many of you remember the number of your school bus? Okay. Can we say that? One, two, three together. One, two, three. 26. Okay. I was bus number 26 growing up. And uh, if you rode a bus, you know this experience because I lived kind of out of town. It was a little bit of a uh, drive. And so... And especially if you had the same bus driver, they almost become like a member of the family, don't they? Right? Because when you were in first grade, your mom was there. Goodbye, Johnny. Mrs. Jones, thank you so much. You guys have a safe trip now. Goodbye. And they do that day after day, you know, year after year. Here's cookies, you know, at Christmas and hot chocolate on the cold day. Mrs. Jones, thank you so much. They become almost like a, a part of the family. When you were riding the school bus growing up, how many of you were concerned about where the school bus was going? Okay, one in the front row. All right, I'll talk to you later. Uh, Most kids not too concerned about where the school bus is going. They kind of know where it's going, don't they? It's going to school. What do you hear on a school bus? Generally speaking, (laughs) laughter, kids carrying on, a few nefarious activities, no doubt, going on below the seats where the mirror, they can't see you, you know. But the general school bus, the sound that you hear as it goes by, maybe in your neighborhood, is loud laughter, and it sounds like a great time going on in the school bus. Why? Because the kids are unconcerned about where this thing is going. Now, let's just say that the kids on the school bus is going down the road, and they look up, and they see, and it's like a madman at the wheel, you know. It's Heath Ledger from Batman at the wheel. (laughs) What happens in the bus? Ah! Right? Or worse yet, what if they look up, and nobody's at the wheel of the bus? Ah! Right? There's terror. We don't know where this thing's going. We don't know if we're going to crash. They can't enjoy the ride. You know where I'm going here, okay? The atheist says there is nobody at the wheel of the bus. Humanity is going wherever it's going, and who knows what happens to planet Earth. The agnostic and even the deist might believe that God wound the clock back in time and past But who knows where it's going, and God doesn't care. He's not here amongst us. He's not personal. Who knows where the bus is going? I don't know how people live with that philosophy of life. When you think everything is purely chance and random, and there is no meaning, and there is no purpose, because there's nobody driving the bus. And into that steps the Bible and Christianity Not with a God who is distant, but a God who loved us in his son and became one of us. A God who is personally involved in our life. A driver of the bus 
who loves the kids and who is committed to their welfare and has said, I am taking this bus to Schoolhouse Beautiful. That is where we are going. Allows then children of God to live their life with a kind of freedom. We can actually laugh about things. We can enjoy our life. We can enjoy the ups and the downs and the things that happen. When the bus takes a turn that we don't understand or hits a pothole of some kind, we don't worry. Why? Because we know who's driving the bus and where he's promised to take it. We're like, oh, this is not exactly where I thought we were going. I maybe wouldn't have preferred this route I'm on right now, but I know in the end we end up at Schoolhouse Beautiful. It changes life, and it actually allows us then to enjoy life, rationally enjoy the ride. And that's what Solomon is saying, enjoy the ride. There is a God who is sovereign over all of these seasons. He's taking you to to a place of beauty and good. Therefore, in this feudal life that you're living, in feudal life that you're living, enjoy it. Enjoy the good things that God gives. Enjoy your life. Laugh. Dance. Enjoy it. And do good. Isn't that good? I almost want to sit on it some more and just be like, but the clock urges me on. There's a time for everything, including third service. <laughs> now, the one thing that has not been answered yet is why God has us on the road that we're on, okay? Why the season of life that we're in, especially the painful seasons of life? Notice the end there in verse 14. Why does God have seasons like this? God has done it so that people fear before him. Not only must we acknowledge that there is mystery to why things are happening and to enjoy life, but in the end, the reason that God does these things is that we might worship him, that we might reverence him as the one who is actually in control. Ravi Zacharias tells the story. Uh, apparently, he had the opportunity to meet Joseph Stalin's daughter. And if you know world history, Joseph Stalin, one of the great murderers in all of history, he murdered 20 million of his own people, a very terrible man. And Joseph Stalin's daughter told Ravi Zacharias that she was in the room when, when uh, Stalin died. And she said, this is what happened. Stalin kind of pulled himself up from his bed, he shook his fist at heaven, and he died. The raised, clenched fist. This is the spirit of the famous poem Invictus, which ends with these words. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Mankind unleashed in all of his self-glory. The writer of that poem, by the way, Henley, died at age 53. So much for being captain of his uh, soul and master of his fate. I remember I listened uh, when they, when they, before they executed Timothy McVeigh, the Oklahoma City bomber. They interviewed him and they said, hey, are you afraid to die? And he said, I am not afraid to die. 
I will use my military survival skills. I will survive. And all of these represent the core issue in the natural man's heart, which is that I am God. I am God of my life. I am God of my future. So what does the real God do to destroy all the pretend gods, the seven billion pretend gods in this world? He brings seasons of life. He brings ups and downs. He brings the good and the bad. And in the end, life humbles everybody, doesn't it? You get to the end of your life, that old man, no matter how glorious he was at one time in his life, now he is weak. Now he is about to die. That's Ecclesiastes 12. All the glory of the man about to enter back into the earth. He is about to return to dust. God humbles everyone. And the reason that he does it, the text here says, is so that we will fear him. Ecclesiastes is going to end. Here's the bottom line of Ecclesiastes. Fear God and obey his commandments. Might it be the reason that God has you in a season of mourning or sorrow or a pain or a trouble, that God is working something through that pain to humble your heart, for you to acknowledge you're not God. You're not the captain of your soul. You're not the master of your fate. And to come under him with reverence and to acknowledge you are God. That's Nebuchadnezzar. There's so many examples in Scripture of how God humbles us so that we might come to that proper place of reverencing him. And God's sovereignty was no more on display than when he sent his son Jesus into this world. Listen to what the Bible says about time and Christ's coming. Romans 5, but while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Here's Galatians 4, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And I just end with this Christological note that God is sovereign over time, God is sovereign over seasons, and that includes God is sovereign over redemptive history and time. And that at just the right time, politically, culturally, spiritually, at just the right time with just the right virgin young woman and her betrothed husband, Joseph, at just the right time in the spiritual course of history, God sent his son into this world to save us from the despair of living in all of that and to save us to a life of worship of this God. And there is mystery. We can't understand these things. I have no idea what your week ahead or my week holds. But the story of the Bible is of a God who loves us and loved us in his son Jesus. he's He's at the wheel of the bus, okay? And we can trust him and live in worship of him and reverence and fear of him and to submit our lives to his calendar and to his son and to his will and to praise him all our days. Ecclesiastes 3. Amen. Amen. But the story of the Bible is of a God who loves us and loved us in his son Jesus. Who's at, he's, the, he's at the wheel of the bus. Okay? And we can trust him 
and live in worship of him and reverence and fear of him and to submit our lives to his calendar and to his son and to his will and to praise him all our days. Ecclesiastes 3. Amen. Amen.